The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. We're on. Oh, now we're on. Okay, good Tuesday morning, everybody. It's a glorious Tuesday. Sunny, nice, very nice. Uh, anyway, I'm Paul Rudy. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, great to see you. Yeah, good to be here. One of those three-week uh, yeah. betweeners. Right. Uh, normally, it's every yeah. couple of weeks, but it's been three. And, of course, Ryan Repco, certified financial planner professional who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. And my son-in-law. Do I have to say that? <laughs> That's the most important. Why did important you write that in here? My most no, you said don't title say that. All. You don't want to be called. That's right. You can call them with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions at talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisors and conducting your own research and do diligence we're here just to help people ask the right questions right hopefully we accomplish that sometimes i know you do dr fred but ryan and i are slackers probably over here on this side anyway um now everybody's worried about inflation fred right well again uh we should be worried about it but probably not uh overly right now uh we're in a situation now where it seems like um Everyone is really optimistic about the future, so I think that sets you up for some disappointments. Everyone's expecting a huge rebound of the economy, which is probably true, but if it's not as huge as, as uh, predicted, uh, people may be disappointed. So it's kind of a, a, a good situation in the sense that we're optimistic, but also there's some uh, potential problems down the line as well. Do you think uh, in that regard, then, uh, people were kind of confounded and bewildered last year as we're in a pandemic and a a major recession and the stock market reaches all-time highs and you were always reminding us because it's a disc the market stock market's a discounting uh, mechanism discounts the future so it's thinking about what's ahead of us so in that regard may- maybe people ought not just assume that if we have a booming economy that we have a booming stock market that goes at least lockstep with it yeah we may already have uh, have cashed into a certain extent on the uh the future here, and, and if it turns out to be more or less as expected, you wouldn't necessarily think the uh, market's going to respond in a, in a huge way. So again, not not necessarily predicting a downturn, but not necessarily saying it's going to be another year like last year. There's something in the Wall Street Journal that uh, some uh, mutual funds now are, are talking about how great they did in the oh, last 12 yeah. months because they got <laughs> rid of the uh, the first three months of last year, and then there's a huge rebound during that time. So you have to, there's got an endpoint uh, uh, sensitivity to various kinds of measures. Yeah, for sure. So you're, you know, it's, it's a little bit of trickery really, uh, even though it's a, it's a historical fact, but okay. still you, you know, you can lop off any one or two months sometimes and have a completely different track record. Uh, but the fact is if you eliminate the first three months of last year, so now you're going a year from, yeah. you know, say early April, the market had already bottomed and the, Broad U.S. market went up 75% off of its lows, so everybody's going to look pretty good. Right. And uh, But do you think, um, Fred, you know, I mean, for decades now we've had disinflation, and for more than 10 years we've had almost no inflation. People are going to probably call and say, oh, there's inflation. Haven't you been to the grocery yeah. store? But I'm talking about I go by the – just looking at the national stats, the CPI and the producer price index – I'm wondering if people aren't going to be maybe more fearful about inflation than they need to be just because it's coming off of almost a zero to one percent inflationary period. So, you know, when you read that uh, U.S. producer prices increased more than expected in March, resulting in the largest annual gain in nine and a half years, uh, probably, you know, it's it's probably not a, a troublesome sign yet it also could be uh, a kind of bottleneck getting back going again there are are lots of stories about firms having trouble hiring people and it's not because there are not people around but just getting it back in in uh uh, kind of prime flow of things and then like uh uh i've gotten used to uh 
Uber. So I arrived at the airport yesterday and uh, called the Uber, and there were no Ubers around. No, so <laughs> and that, that, in the paper today, they said that uh, they're trying to increase their workforce to uh, meet the really high demand right now. Interesting. So it may be that it could be a transitory kind of thing, getting back to uh, to uh, a more kind of a normal economy. This may sound weird, but to me, if we get one or two or three years of maybe above 2% inflation in some ways, it's kind of like, yeah, well, at least we got away from the recessionary issues. Right. And maybe that's a sign that we did. And, and the feds actually uh, endorsed that, saying uh, 2% is our goal, but we're not going to be very, very worried if you go above 2% for a um, a while, just like we were below 2% for uh, some time. Yeah, you know, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, you know, he basically recently keeps reaffirming the fact that the central bank has a commitment to loose, to keep uh, monetary policy loose right. uh, for quite some time. In fact, uh, on 60 Minutes recently, he said that highly unlikely that we would raise rates anything like this year. And also goes on uh, in an article that says the Fed will do everything we can to support the economy for as long as it takes to complete the recovery. And then I read something that when you really look at the almost zero interest rates, the banks can borrow a million dollars and pay like a hundred bucks in interest, or maybe it was ten million dollars. Right. It was like it was virtually. So the bank should make money, I would <laughs> think. Um, the Fed officials. Uh, see the GDP, gross domestic product, rising in 2021 by 6.5%, which would be the fastest growth since 1984. Well, that's, again, the end point uh, kind of thing. So last year we had a, of course. a decline, so it's getting back uh, a 6.5%. It's basically getting back to where we were. So, again, it depends on if you took a two-year uh, time period, then it would look uh, pretty flat. The one thing he just doesn't seem to be worried about is inflation. I mean, a lot right. of other people are. Well, right, right now. You it's can, all I, old I, people, though, Fred, <laughs> because, you know, you have to be of a certain age to remember real troublesome right. inflation. But you could argue that uh, uh, no one's worried about much of anything now. Uh, you could argue that, uh, obviously, that the uh, monetary authorities are very uh, forgiving now. And the same thing in, on the fiscal side. We're spending money like, like never before. So there seems to be no no immediate constraint in terms of either uh, spending more or keeping interest rates really low. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine nothing, anything else but a boom for the economy in the in the near term. And yeah. I don't know if that's a year or two. Uh, it seems like everybody pulls back. At, you know, all the economists yeah. seem to think, you know, they don't expect much of a boom past a couple of years. No, just getting more or less uh, normalizing again. But also it gets us into a situation where um, – we're not making really close calculations about the value of various kinds of spending. So the infrastructure bill, uh, you know, almost everyone's in favor of improving our infrastructure, but the definition of infrastructure has become very elastic now to virtually anything that uh, on the agenda can be counted as, as infrastructure. So again, if you're talking about roads and uh, things of that sort, uh, there's uh, almost unanimous agreement. But if you get into uh, green energy and all other kinds of things that are included in that, or public housing, uh, it becomes a little bit more more dubious. And, uh, you know, who could have imagined a year ago we were basically on the front end pretty much of the a pandemic, and yet when I go look at the median, U.S. median uh, incomes, all-time high. Right. Uh, look at household net worth, all-time high. I mean, nobody would have, couldn't have, no. you couldn't have, couldn't have imagined that a year ago. Right. Uh, and, uh, again, uh, there, we've had two or three really huge stimuluses, each one uh, bigger than the last. So, again, that can't continue forever. So I ha we have to go back to a kind of self-sustaining situation. One thing I think is funny, just as like an observation, I just think that, you know, a year ago we were wrestling with major global calamity. And this year our biggest concern is what about maybe some high inflation in yeah, the future. Boom. Yeah, boom. Yeah. You know, it's almost like we have we have to latch our fears onto something, and this kind of feels like the only something to grasp at right now. And like, granted, the the government is doing kind of unprecedented spending at this time, so it's not for no reason at all. But at the same time, it's like I think it, a lot of people's wheelhouses are spinning to the extreme and fearing, you know, the absolute worst outcome possible, rather than there could be a whole broad series of outcomes ranging with inflation being just. Minor, right. a whole yeah, yeah. a whole new set of reasons to be out of the stock market. For example, <laughs> right. you know we're seeing so many uh, basically articles that suggest you need to somehow change your investment policy. Right. Yeah, and last year uh, people were saying there's no way we can have a vaccine in less than two or three or four years, and now we're 
arguing about uh, who gets in line first for it, whether you're you know 35 or 37 or whatever. So again, that's one thing I, I, I've had a few good things to say about uh, uh, President Trump, but uh, the vaccine situation really is amazing in terms of how fast that was brought online. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't think it seems like fewer and fewer people dispute that, you know, or at least willing to give him some credit there. Uh, of course, I guess we had the, we actually had the uh, vaccine fairly quickly. Yeah. But then it's it's a bigger d- issue though to think about. Okay, how do we get this to three hundred and thirty million people? Also, uh, the news story just uh, a few minutes ago, uh, we had uh, six million vaccinations and six people. Uh, had some kind of ailment associated with that. If, if you're in that kind of situation, it makes it very difficult to go go forward. I would assume that out of six or seven million people, uh, there'll be a number of blood clots uh, occurring. Randomly, uh, it could be the you know the basketball referee that uh, fell over during the NCAA had a blood clot. So I don't know whether he had a vaccination or not. But uh, of uh, six million people, all kinds of bad things are going to happen, and it may or may not be associated with the vaccine. And it looks like uh, to pay for some of this uh, increased spending, um, they're certainly floating the idea of higher, at least corporate tax rates. Yeah. Um, I think what President Trump took them from 35 to 20, to 21, yeah. and President Biden wants to take them corporate tax rates to 28%, but then you have some people like Joe Manchin, et cetera, Senator Manchin that's saying, ah, 28 is too high. Yeah. Uh, and probably they need his vote, but he seems to be more willing to go towards yeah. 25%. But either way, it, it seems pretty clear that we're going to have some higher marginal tax rates. Well, it's hard to know, though. I think that uh, the uh, administration and, and the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, has set up a, a goal which is probably unattainable. They say, we want to raise tax rates. We want to guarantee that all the other countries in the world don't lower theirs to take advantage of our higher tax rate. Well, that's nice to say, but it's almost impossible to get it to work. And I mean, if you and I own banks and set interest rates at all, make sure that nobody pays more than 1%, I mean, yeah. they call that collusion. Yeah. Well, collusion, you can, governments can collude, but uh, governments can enforce the uh, rules. Uh, so just like a, a, when you have a uh, situation with uh, the oil cartel getting together, uh, you say, well, they all agree, but then they start cheating on one another right away, and government's going to start cheating on one another even if they do agree by by giving back to our kinds of uh, deals. Is that basically an admission that that differentials and tax corporate tax rates between countries actually do matter, that money will flow out uh, and go where it's more friendly from a tax rate? I mean, it's, uh, it's so almost, admi- well, it's not even almost, that's an admission that tax rates matter. Well, it certainly does. From to a comp- a, competitive. Uh, to a certain extent, but there, there are different, there's flows of uh, nominal things and also actual changes. So in, in many cases, a firm doesn't have to pick up their factory and move it someplace. They just put their headquarters someplace else. And it may not affect the uh, economy as much as it does the tax revenue. But again, it's very important. Again, uh, I don't, people tend to overemphasize sometimes tax sure. differentials, but they, they are important. And uh, a good example is as the case of the uh, state inheritance taxes back in the early part of the century, uh, uh, states had uh, various kinds of inheritance or estate taxes, and they started lowering them to get people to, the retirees to move there. And then eventually the federal government stepped in and said, well, will pay up to a certain extent, and most most uh, most of the states then conform to that. So it, it, it makes a difference, but it's not the only thing in the equation about uh, what makes an economy go. I think another area people are starting to be concerned about, I guess it's, it's kind of a high-class problem. I'm happy because I own a home. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the national Case-Shiller Index on uh, home prices, they're up 11.2% in the past 12 months from a national sense. Largest gain since 2005-2006. And uh, I think it was Brian uh, Westbury uh, that wrote this. Um, he basically linked it back to a problem of lack, you know, lack of homes. He writes that population growth and scrappage, voluntary knockdowns, fires, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, et cetera. We would normally expect housing starts at about a million and a half a year, but in the past 20 years, 2001 through 2021, builders have only started about one and a quarter million homes uh, and builders haven't started more than a million and a half homes in a calendar year since 2006. And finally, he said single family uh, existing home inventories are at a rock bottom levels with 870,000 for sale in February, 
to put this in perspective, the lowest inventory for, uh, for any February on record from 1982 to 2016 was $1.55 So it seems to be quite a shortage. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a completely different situation. The problem back in uh, 2007 to 2009 was people who were defaulting on their mortgages. And you, you hear very little about mortgage defaults now, the, the new thing is uh, not paying your rent and with uh, extensions of uh, eviction uh, prohibitions, uh, there, there's not much incentive for a lot of people to pay their rents, but there's still the ability and the uh, incentive to pay your, your uh, uh, house payment every, every month. So I don't think you're, there's no, no problem in that area similar. It doesn't to, seem to be like it. And all. people aren't cashing. Uh, maybe that's the next wave is that back in 2005 and six or seven, people were uh, Monetizing their their increase in their home values and making uh, taking loans against that, and I suppose it's possible again that uh, if housing values shoot up, they'll have something like that. But it's a, it's not not. And again, I, if you go back though in the, in the long term uh, and look at what people have said, I think most people think that uh, the U.S. had invested too much in housing and not enough in other kinds of assets. So maybe we're getting back to a a more uh, more reasonable kind of situation. And, and people, their accommodations, everyone doesn't have to have, you know, three bathrooms and six bedrooms. You can make all kinds of adjustments in terms of uh, how much you uh, you spend and how much space you use. That makes you a 1970s kind of guy, Fred. Or <laughs> 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 <That's good>. 60s. <laughs> and people were really happy in the 60s with, you know, having, you know, more than one bathroom. Yeah. was kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, I, I always, my clients see me as an incurable optimist, but... I always circle back to it. it's the only worldview that tends to square with the facts. It, if I look back at when I was in high school, I mean, hardly any kids drove cars to high school. I mean, this is really nothing about anything, yeah. but you know, now it seems like every high school kid has a has their own car. Yeah, and also the uh, the lineup at elementary schools. It used to be kids just went, went out the door and that was it. And now there's a, a huge traffic jam every place in the country. I think after. After two thirty, well, evidently most people don't understand the basics of Social Security. Mass Mutual recently gave a twelve-question true/false quiz to fifteen hundred people, aged fifty-five to sixty-five, who have not yet claimed their benefits. Just three percent of the respondents were an- were able to answer all the questions correctly. Thirty-five percent of the respondents failed the quiz altogether, and eighteen percent received a D grade. Ninety-four uh, percent were able to correctly say that the retirement benefits will be reduced if they claim them before full retirement age, generally 66 or 67, depending on your year of birth. Um, But other questions tended to stump respondents. And I I thought, you know what, this kind of makes sense, Ryan, you know, from what we see, just the basics. And really, they they were less inclined to accurately gauge the rules for spousal benefits after divorce. Well, that's kind of a tricky one, but not all that tricky. And then survivor benefits after the death of a spouse. Results show that 22% of near retirees did not know that if a spouse passed away, you cannot collect both your own and your spouse's benefits. Um, I mean, you know, Ryan, when you interact with people getting ready to retire, uh, and I'll read some more from that, but uh, there really is a lot of confusion about the basics of Social Security. Uh, and And it's interesting how many people come in wanting to just automatically default to if if they're 62 they want them at 62 mm-hmm. uh how many people have walked into our offices that didn't know that based on being married to an ex-spouse uh, for 10 years that they could collect benefits and they were surprised to hear that and even uh maybe a non-working spouse uh that can collect the spousal benefits to get 50 percent of the full you know the retirement at uh full retirement age uh, of their other spouse. Um, I just think Social Security is so, like, it's become so complex because there's so many nuances. There's so many, I think, corrections where, like, you know, the government has patched it and said, all right, here is kind of a loophole, and now we correct it. Uh, I'm I'm not surprised at all to see the results of the survey, just based on, like, meeting with our own prospects right. and clients themselves, like people who are knowledgeable folks that – show some interest maybe even in uh, their investments and their their world of finance. It is just, it's kind of like a black box for a lot of people. And I'll explain, there are books written on right. individual topics, let alone the whole topic at large of Social Security. 
and you know we've read these books, right? But I'll tell you what, they're a great sleeping pill for just about everybody else. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, each little area has well, unless this and unless this, or if this, it's right. just. Uh, yeah. But but a lot of people get the basics wrong. Just mm-hmm. just a reasonable claiming strategy we find when when we'll recommend sometimes that the higher earning spouse delay till seventy if possible. I mean, most of the time, it's not a favorable response. I think there's a real reluctance to, to delay benefits, even though it's so compelling sometimes to do so. Yeah, it's a, again, we talk about behavioral issues. Having the money in your pocket may be uh, more vivid than uh, having a little bit more 10 years from now or eight, I, eight years from now. And, and you know, I watched uh, uh, Dave Ramsey on Ben Shapiro, just, uh, you know, as a feed. Yeah. And th- th- this kind of highlights this inv- how important the human nature and behavior is and, and how it can get in the way. Uh, ben Shapiro was saying, I just don't get your debt snowball thing where you pay the smallest debt yeah. off first and then the next biggest one yeah. and the next biggest one. Why wouldn't you pay the one that has the highest interest rate? And, 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 and Dave Ramsey's response was, well, it doesn't work the other way. In yeah. other words, people get discouraged quickly. Yeah. They're, not making, they're not seeing any real big difference. Yeah, you get some easy wins at the beginning. So you get that easy win. You become more hopeful. And when you become more hopeful, you get more excited. And maybe you yeah. work a little harder. Or maybe you uh, sacrifice a little bit more yeah. because you're seeing that. And I think I, 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 this always seems to circle back that most – most investment and retirement problems that people create are, you know, unforced errors yeah. uh, based on either bad intuition or most most often just human nature and behavioral right. issues. Also, it's not made easy. Uh, 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 I, I came home from being away for a week, uh, big, thick things about uh, Medicare things and uh, like maybe 20 pages ending up that uh, they paid seven dollars or something, and then we got I uh, got a bill recently, and the uh, uh, the medical bill was for a, a brief visit to a dermatologist was two thousand dollars for a ten minute visit, but it turned out that when it got down to the bottom line, uh, I had to pay like eight dollars or something. Yeah. And there's, there's no way you can understand that. And similarly, with uh, every year my. Uh, um, Medicare premium is uh, a kind of randomness because it depends on my taxes yep. a year or two ago. So yep. I have no idea whether it's going to go up or down. It does make a lot of difference to me, but uh, uh, if, if I tried to know, it wouldn't be worth the time and effort to find it out. Yeah, there are some little trips and traps in, in Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you can do some things you think in a silo, they make a lot of sense. But yeah. then you forget that, oh, it's going to increase my Medicare premium for a while. Yeah, two know. years later. Yeah, two years later. Um, so, you know, financial advisors are usually on the watch uh, of that. But, yeah, Medicare, much like Social Security, I think is, uh, is it looks simple at first, but then there's all kinds of different machinations and of how you should approach that. It's amazing how many times that that's, that's kind of the central question on the front end of a new client relationship is, hey, you're going to help us, you know, go through this. And it's really not that complicated. Once you kind of get inside it and understand it, then it becomes a little more straightforward. But it's going to be confusing. And I think a lot of people come into that decision fearing that uh, Social Security is going to dry up completely. Like they have to get their dollars that they worked and strived for for decades, and they have to get them now before it's like gone. Is that rational, Fred? Uh, it's not rational, but it's understandable. Uh, the the rule is uh, at some time when the the uh, uh, lockbox trust fund runs out, uh, which might might be 10, 20 years in the future. The law says that uh, benefits will have to be reduced, so it'll just be the amount of money coming, coming in. in. And so, if, if only 80% of the money comes in from taxes, you'd have to reduce Social Security benefits from 100 to 80%. Uh, so that's that's the law, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> you can think what would happen if uh, 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 people found that they. We're losing 20% of their Social Security benefits. It would be a, a real problem for Congress. And, and so, again, it, it could happen, but it's uh, not going to happen. They're already floating some ideas to start repairing that. Even yeah. in the most recent talks of tax increases about, you know, li- taking the cap off of earnings well, about 400000 Also, proposals to uh, open the door, too, that uh, the proposal to lower um, um, Medicare eligibility down to uh, 62 or 60 to 
make it easier for people to retire. That's one of the main, main hurdles right now for early retirement is the bridge to uh, Medicare, which starts at 65. Unless you have a million or two dollars. I mean, you know, we deal. <laughs> I think people are always, and I think most listeners would be scratch their head if I tell them, oh, if you have, you could have a million or two million dollars of assets, and but if some of them are in a taxable account instead of a non-tax privileged retirement account, you know, you can kind of spend what you need out of that without creating much taxable income alone. And, and these subsidies and the exchanges are all tied to income, uh, your your income. And so it's not unusual to have millionaires getting, you know, 80 or 90 percent of their health care paid for. I It's almost as if that's a workaround, Medicare yeah. being at 65. It's that, as you said, that that can really get in the way of a, of a retirement before 65. Right. But then for the subset of people yeah, that can, can be very wealthy, you know, even that's solvable. Right. Uh, and it, and we dealt with that yesterday, a prospective client and was worried about that. He's 59 and a half and he's, his biggest concern was that. And I said, wow, when I looked up the makeup of his assets and kind of what he wanted to spend, we thought, you know, we think we're gonna get pretty much, uh, uh, I, I think this healthcare problem just went away. Right. Uh, so that's that's always a surprise to people. I uh, read an article in the Wall Street Journal. You know, I haven't read, Fred, the Wall Street Journal for years. I didn't have a subscription, mainly because I'm not interested in what the markets did that day. I know it sounds strange for a financial advisor, but we're not in the prediction yeah. business. Well, they, they have the retirement section this weekend. Yes, and they had a really good retirement section. So I thought it was uh, very worthwhile. I thought it was very practical. But the part that Anybody that's been a client of ours or anybody that listens to the show understands that I'm plugged into, I just talked about it earlier, the emotional, the behavioral side uh, of what trips people up. And they had a big part of it. It was eight questions. Are you emotionally prepared for retirement? Yeah. Uh, some of them were a little, you know, kind of uh, cliche, uh, but some of them, I, I don't, I think many times people do underestimate that transition right. into retirement. Yeah, I was going to say that it, it may not have been a random sample. The person, the woman that wrote it was a, a psychotherapist, and she was talking about her clients. So, <laughs> You know, uh, and, and, and now that you say that, and, and now that I read that the second time, it was, it was you know, I can make that connection. Uh, you know, how it was written was very, almost some of it was uh, somewhat chauvinistic. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I was surprised and it's some... Well, maybe I'm hypersensitive <laughs> these days to the cancel culture, but yeah. I, I thought some of it was a little bit sexist yeah. uh, kind of thinking, but yet maybe somewhat yeah. realistic. I mean, she was just basing it on her interviews with clients. Yeah. But the first one was, and I remember this, when I, before I worked for myself and I worked for others, now that's been more than 30, some odd, 35 years ago, uh, you know, with Sunday's always you know, we're kind of not my favorite day because I started anticipating yeah. the week ahead of time and all that. And I think a lot, I think that's quite common. And so she writes question number one, uh, every Sunday night as I anticipate returning to work, do I look forward to finishing tasks, seeing friends and colleagues, and perhaps learning something new? Or do I dread another week of tedious tasks and difficult people? Do you uh, look forward to seeing me on Monday morning, Paul? <laughs> well, you know, I, well, since I saw you and the kids on Sunday night for pizza, I, guess, <laughs> I don't. It's not all that much different. Um, but you can, I can clearly see Fred and Ryan. You know, the clients that are just ready to just get out of that rat race, and then I, then you get on the other side. You get the reluctant retiree that's like they know they're giving that up, and they kind of enjoy that part. Yeah. Well, the thing we talked about, I think, last time or the time before is. It's very hard to know uh, how you'll feel in a completely different situation. So you could ask uh, the person, uh, if you're retired, uh, do you look forward to, to getting up with nothing to do on, on Monday? And you don't really know that because you haven't had that experience. Oh, Ryan does that every week. He gets up <laughs> Monday and does nothing. <laughs> but I coast through the week. Now, Fred, you, you obviously could fully retire if you wanted yeah. uh, from a financial stance, but you've, you've opted to stay rather busy. I mean, Well, it's busy, but I, I I'm not really... I, I do things like serve on the service board and things of that sort. So I have a lot of flexibility. So do again, you find in your case that that's important to you? That, yeah, that, that's I, almost I, a need. I, I don't, I'm running again, so I'm doing it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. I, I want to do it. So again, uh, people thank me for my service, and I say, don't thank me. I actually do it because I enjoy being involved. So I, I, that's an important thing to me. Um, I teach classes, one, one class every year or so, and I like to do that. So, again, it's it's uh, nice to have that opportunity, but also I could 
if it does if it goes away I, I certainly can uh, find something else to do how important of a question you know do you think that is like uh, are you it sounds like you're saying well you really don't know until you're there yeah. you can think about it all you want but until you're in the yeah. throes of it uh, maybe it's an exercise that yeah well I talk, I, again I'm repeating myself from last week but uh, I almost never played tennis or golf now even though I could play anytime I wanted to and so if I had focused my retirement on that I might have been disappointed so <laughs> uh, sure uh, the second question is, have I thought carefully about my financial picture? What expenses am I prepared to cut when money begins tight? You know, pr- probably the biggest unknown, and it's, a, it's sort of amazing, Ryan, you know, and we're, we're talking to a prospective retiree. It's rare that they really have a pretty good handle of any spec, you know, specifics of kind of what they're, what I call either a burn rate, you know, you might hear me say that, or a spend rate. Um, so that that by itself is probably something people need to think about. Um, what are, what's your solution to so many moving parts? But is there a way to kind of shortcut that? Yeah, I think just looking at, um, for example, if you're still working, of course, you look at how much money goes into your bank account from your paycheck to each month, and then looking at the end of the month after all your bills have been spent, is your account balance higher or lower? Um, if it's higher, then of course it means you have some extra savings built up, so you know you're doing okay. If it's lower, you're you're maybe spending a lot. So you start getting a sense of after a period of you know many months of reviewing this, you know roughly how much you spend, how much you save, and you can kind of back into uh, how much you might need just to cover your life expenses once you actually cross the bridge and go into retirement. She talks about a useful exercise to imagine cutting expenses if you ever had to. Um, that's kind of key, isn't it, to be flexible? If you're going into retirement and you're not when you're, you're you're just not working anymore, you're maybe plenty busy, but you're not collecting a paycheck. I guess is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know there's no facts about the future, so even any plan that is highly probable to meet or exceed what we think we're going to be able to s- spend, how do you deal with that? With how do you prepare clients? For well, if we get into something you know extraordinarily nasty, mm-hmm. um, d- do you show them what what would have to happen for you know like here's if this happens then here's what your spending would be? Yep, exactly. We we try to just give people the picture of let's pretend today's the day you retire, and no sooner do you retire and we have your money invested, tomorrow shows up and we have a thirty, forty, fifty percent decline in the broad U.S. market. In the broad, broad U.S. Market. market, just showing a very large world event potentially happening on that 50 side, for example. What does that mean? What is the, the direct translation into how much I can now spend as this newly minted retiree? And so we, we actually show people and we say, here's the dollars you could have spent before. Here's now a new reduction. Does that work for you? Right. Can you still make ends meet? And almost everybody that we end up working with says, yeah, I can make that work. And I think giving that, it forces the issue on you. Um, when you're living in good times, for example, you're not in this, you know, this calamity or this just regular run of the market or bull market or uh, bear market when you're down 30 or so percent. You can make kind of rational decisions, thinking rationally, not under duress of, of a downtime. Yeah, I can do that. I can I can make that pullback if needed. And oftentimes these pullbacks are pretty minor um, and short term. Uh, they're not they're not like a permanent event. And when you're going through that exercise before you tell somebody what you can they can spend or hope to spend you know if they were to retire when they want to retire um you you should treat it and stress it in such a way that it takes something really awful Mm -hmm. uh and even if that shows up the the spending change shouldn't be disturbing it it should be reasonably modest it might be a five or a ten percent change in spending Yep. And, I, and I've always felt, Fred, that if people go into retirement and they cut the paycheck off, I mean, you have to say, okay, here's what we spend, but what's my essentials? Like, what, what could I still spend and yet be happy and maybe not knock it out of the park? I, w- I guess if I had to pick a number from the air, I'd say, okay, if, if your spend is 5000 a month, figure out how to do it on, uh, I, I wanted to say 10%, so 4500 but probably... And most of the time, that's probably the magnitude of a cut you might have to have temporarily. But you probably ought to try to figure out a way, like what would I do if I had to go a year on $4,000 a month or two years on 4000 instead of 5000 So sometimes it's helpful yeah. to think about what's my desired 
spend, right. but what's my essential spend? Well, so at the same you time? can. Uh, it depends how how lean or or fat your your basic budget. If you build in a vacation a year, I say a cruise or something like that, and uh, your uh, bad times come along, you, you don't take the cruise and you're back. So again, some people don't have that luxury though. They may if you're living right on the margin to begin with, then it's going to be really tough. If you have a little bit of slack it's not going to be that tough i think those are the one those are the clients that i almost won't take maybe i don't take them on anymore if i see basically their fixed costs are so high and they're very little discretion there um i i don't that would stress me out and i think there is i'm not a don't go into uh retirement with no debt person i'm not that rigid but i don't think you want to go into retirement that on the first of the month if Five thousand a month or four thousand a month doesn't show up. I'm in trouble. I, like I'm in, I'm going to have collectors calling me. Uh, probably ought to whittle. Though, instead of owning the second home, maybe you rent, like Fred said, and that way you can have certain things you can turn off temporarily mm-hmm. that you're not locked into. I think that's pretty key in retirement. Yeah, I, you know your question earlier. You know how important is flexibility in retirement? I think it's one of the most essential things in retirement is is flexibility. Uh, because it doesn't lock you in or back you into a corner. You have options that you can you know, pull a lever here or there and be able to get through an event. You don't want to have to have ev- everything work out just right or have all the stars necessarily need to align to be able to still live peacefully. Because that's not even a plan. That's a bet. No, uh, yeah, a wish. So. Yeah, so I think that's key. Flexibility, uh, if there's one term going into retirement, is you have to be able to be flexible. Everybody's after this elusive safe withdrawal strategy or a safe yeah. withdrawal rate. Is it 4%? Is it 45 Is it 3 I mean, it's all over the map. The best withdrawal uh, retirement strategy is one that has some flexibility yeah. to it. I guess I, I, I ask you a question. Uh, I never quite understood the 4%. Is it Four percent of what you have right now, or is it four percent at a certain level forever, or four percent adjusted for inflation? Great question. And most people that sit there and tell me they're going to follow the four percent rule, who needs an advisor, can't explain to me what the four percent rule is. So it go, all goes back to William Bangin, I think nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety two, where he basically just created a portfolio of sixty percent stocks, and at that time it was the S and P five hundred and forty percent short to intermediate. I don't remember exactly, maybe five year treasuries. Uh, as for the bond component, and he looked used third. I think it was thirty-year periods uh, that he measured everyone in time. So we have all this data on a monthly return basis, and he said, "Okay, we can pretend we're retiring on the front end of a thirty-year retirement over all these monthly periods." And what he was after is what rate of initial withdrawal. And I'll answer your question here in a minute. If I start out at four percent. And increase it by inflation every year. So if inflation's 5%, I'm going to increase that payment by 5%. Um, you know, can I make it safely through all those 30-year periods? And it turns out the 1960, I think beginning in January of 1966, is probably the most difficult period, as it turns out. And basically determined that somewhere right around 4%, as long as you start with that rate, and just increase it by inflation and no other adjustments. Uh, it's kind of like driving. I put it uh, to people. I say it's kind of like going on a trip in a car with no brakes hmm. and no me- side mirrors or rearview mirrors because you're not going to pay any. You're not going to slow down your spending, and you're not you're not really going to speed up. Only level of inflation, and you don't need the mirrors because you're not going to pay any attention to the out the surroundings. What's going on? So that's where it originally started. It's not just four percent. You know, there's different method people follow, but the four percent rule is. Initially, you start out at four. So, if you had a million dollars, you'd start out at forty thousand. And if next year the inflation was five percent, you'd increase that and go on and on. He subsequently uh, added small company stocks and, and kind of changed the put a little more diversification in. And so, lately, he and for some time now, he's been saying it's really the four and a half percent rule. And even as of late, kind of contrary to what people are thinking, while well, interest rates are so low on bonds, maybe it's not even the four percent rule. He's saying yes, inflation turns out to be the biggest kind of factor when you're thinking of a two to three decade retirement because once you get a period of high inflation, it's kind of locked in for the remainder. So he's even, from what I've read lately, even saying maybe even 5% is a, is a potential starting rate. I find that we're starting somewhere probably around four and a half or so 
See, it doesn't matter. You could start out. There's all kinds of different ways people do this. You could, you can create a, a strategy where you can start out at whatever you want, but it's quickly going yeah. to put a guardrail into where it's going to reduce you if anything but really good comes along. Yeah, the first time I read that, I thought <laughs> it was something funny because you can always take 4% out. <laughs> if you, that's the only thing you're worried about, but you're talking about 4% real in real terms from the starting Keep, point keeping that in real terms and and obviously 1966 uh through 85 is a problem uh 85 95 uh is a problem because if the first 17 years of that period you just in the first 17 years your cost of living doubled and the stock market m- measured by the dow jones and i'm not suggesting that's the best measure but it's certainly what everybody identifies with you know went from a thousand to a thousand in the first 17 years of retirement so we had you know, poor, at least U.S. returns, and very high inflation. And that's why that's such a difficult period. Um, but anyway, so you just, it's flexibility is the key. And we use a guardrail system that we've developed, and it's worked out, you know, there's no facts about the future, but it, I think it's sensible in a sense that we stress test it ahead of time. We identify what it would take uh, from a portfolio value standpoint to increase or decrease our spending. Uh, and then we measure with the client whether is that is that a workable. If this happens, are you going to be okay? Nobody complains about an increase in spending. Yeah, but it, as you said, it goes both ways though. Uh, probably more often than not, you don't say you have to cut back. You say you might have the ability to go a little bit uh, uh, further in terms of withdrawals. In fact, the way we do it, it's it's so stressed. You know, we're being so conservative on the front end. Uh, that it's probably four or five times more likely that you get an increase in spending beyond inflation uh, than it is that you would get a reduction. But we always want to make sure ahead of time, we go through this exercise very deliberately, don't we, Ryan? Does this make sure like, hey, we're not forecasters here. We're not suggesting this is going to happen. But suppose it's the very beginning of the bear market, the great financial crisis, we show them what that would look at. So suppose we're retiring today is one of the methods we do. We actually use two. We say, here's kind of a standard issue bear market for the stock market. Here's the impact on your spending and your plan. Generally, it's nothing. Okay, well, that, that's sensible. But what if we, well, what if I'm one of those people, you know, I have a lot of clients that think they could off, be the author of the book, How Come Investments Work Until I Buy Them? And so we go through that exercise specifically and say, hey, if this is the very top, just before the beginning of the great financial crisis, and we walk into that on the front end of retirement, here's the modest spending changes that you would have, and it's very real. Would you, are you still going to be happy? Mm-hmm. You have to be happy. Um, and I think that's probably the most useful way to approach retirement until I find a better way. <laughs> I'm always open. Um, one of the other, we got you know, another seven or eight minutes here. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the ones that I thought, this was an interesting one. <laughs> do, do my partner and I, you know, it could be a partner or a spouse, have similar ideas about travel or where we want to live in retirement? Now, I see this come up a lot. Um, there can be real differences at that stage where it really, I mean, it causes a lot of divorces. I mean, you know, I haven't witnessed that personally, but I know the statistics and this lady, this author talked about that the number one reason people felt they might divorce after retirement was because they wanted to live in different places and had have different lifestyles uh it's a very difficult area to find compromise and and i we i I, there i do come across this from time to time where you have two different ways of thinking that somehow they they've spent 30 or 40 years together and they've seemed to make it work but suddenly when Suddenly, when one of them wants to spend time with the grandkids and stay local, and one of them wants to travel and be gone and be on the beach, I'm not going to tell you which one I am. <laughs> but it's even more it's even more micro than that. There's another quotation there that uh, the woman said, I'd marry you for better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> yeah. So being around during the day may be a, a problem as well. See, I have to read stuff. Fred just memorizes things. See, yeah. You see the difference? Um, the, I thought it was funny, and I know I highlighted this. Uh, in fact, the survey did who I spoke showed uh, on the question of who is your best friend, more than 60% of men said my wife, while less than 20% of women <laughs> said my husband. I think I, that was fear for the men. They had to say that. <laughs> yeah, it was it depended. It was, is it, was that a controlled study? Was the spouse there yep. at the time? Well, I think women have a, a, a being uh, 
taking the, the challenge of being sexist, I think that women have a wider array of friends probably than most men do. I, you know, I think that's maybe what that's telling us. Uh, either that or just men get grouchier. Yeah. My wife's theory would be my husband's gotten grouchier as he's gotten older. Ryan, you're, you're not... You're not saying anything on that one. I might have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell them about some of our first encounters, Ryan, when you were dating Katie? Oh, they were probably not. They were difficult. I try to put those <laughs> in the past. <laughs> I survived though, right? When he wanted to come, first he sent, sent Ryan, my son-in-law, sends me an email. He wants to come to visit me and talk about something. He didn't say what the something was, and of course my reply was, Ryan, hmm, never heard of you, <laughs> and I hit send. Well, that's. That's my yeah. style. But then when he met us at Biagi's for lunch, first thing I said to him was, well, you're late. <laughs> <laughs> what are father-in-laws for, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this was what, 2010. So I'm still here 11 years later. But one of the points in the article is once one of you retires, a lot of those conversations that never took place when work was a refuge are suddenly on the table. It's much easier to have those conversations earlier rather than later. And... I think most of the time I, I sense that those conversations have been had, but it's troublesome when they haven't. I've noticed that there's there's a little more tension when I, there isn't. When there isn't. I, I think it's very just possible that, you know, the topic never even thought to come up of like, well, of course my spouse, you know, this is maybe the man speaking. Of course my spouse wants to travel. We haven't been able to do that. We've been raising the kids. We've been busy with our family and, and building that. Now is the time to take time for us, and it turns out maybe that's only an opinion shared by one. Uh, it's even in my in my my wife and I our relationship. I think I'd be more inclined if I retired. Uh, Ryan always smiles when I say if I when I retire. Um, I'd be more inclined to spend three months in Florida in the winter, for example. But my wife wouldn't. I mean, that's three. That's two too many months away yeah. from her grandkids but right you, down you, the street. You have the luxury though of of. Being able to think about uh, two months, three months, one month. Uh, the old days, it was someone worked at a factory job, they sold their house and moved to Florida and never came yeah. back again. Yeah, that's, you're that, right. That's a really tough uh, choice. And because you, you sort of know what Florida is, you know what. <laughs> and, and you think one or maybe two generations, you know, you, a fellow might retire at 67, was dead by 75. Yeah. It's a different mentality. But most too, people, like, in, in those days, at least the people I knew, didn't maintain two homes. They, Mm -hmm. Packed up and went someplace. Yeah, and bought their bungalow down in Florida, and you know, and now that's worth twelve million dollars, and yeah. the grandkids own it. You know that they bought for, you know, forty eight thousand years ago. Anyway, it's it's complicated retirement. My observation of thirty eight years of watching people retire, the before and after, is it's kind of there's a lot of tension on the front, and there's a lot of excitement, but it's almost just it's accompanied almost on one for one with a lot of trepidation. Uh, you know, big one for most people is, do we have enough money and are we going to run out of money before we run out of time? I think any reasonable strategy can, can quickly, uh, quick, when I say quickly, I, I, it tends to be, it seems to me a year, two years at the most, I would say before my clients kind of quit worrying about what's going on in the portfolio and what's it worth on any given month. That's what I tell prospective clients. Within a year or two, you're, you're going to quit worrying about many of the things you're worried. But they're front and center on the front end of retirement. And it makes sense. For the most part, I think most people see retirement. If I leave that job, it's irreversible. Uh, and that paycheck's gone. And while I might go find some part-time work, uh, at first I might not even want to do that. But So it's a pretty big decision. And it comes in, uh, in something I've, I've been really open with prospective clients, I, I say, you know, considering there's no facts about the future and nobody can prove anything, and you're going to basically put your lifestyle, your family's lifestyle in somebody's hands, I mean, that's a big decision. And I, you know, it, 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 but at the same time, it's interesting, Fred, how quickly people can make that decision. And I don't know if that's a gut feel uh, or what that is. Maybe it's that good Midwesterner's gut feel, or it's just people that are trust too much. Uh, but I really feel for people making such a major decision. Who is going to be responsible for my lifestyle and my spouse's or partner's lifestyle or my kids' or grandchildren's lifestyle for the next two to three decades and nobody can prove anything? Because even past track records, uh, which is where a lot of people default to, well, I mean, at the beginning of the show, we say, you know, past performance is no indication of future results. 
uh, I think, Fred, and when you're on the SERS board or any other pension or endowment boards you've been in the past, I mean, that's always front and center, is it? Somewhere past performance is it's sure. pretty much mandated by law that somewhere they're going to put that in their document. Right. I mean, uh, but again, uh, uh, that's true, but it's also uh, difficult. Like the example I used is the uh, situation with bonds. We had uh, 30 years of declining interest rates. Well, it's not likely we'll have another 30 years of declining interest rates. So even the assumed rates of return have to be based on not just on the past, but on expectations about the future. Yeah, I've been accused at times of violating that. You know, I'll, I'll say, well, you, there's a person's track record doesn't tell them about the future, but then I'm telling people how much they can spend based on a long series right. of historical data, and they'll say, well, aren't you doing the same thing? I'm saying, no, what I'm trying to do is come up with a really wide distribution of outcomes, sure. but, the, but narrow them so that we can live with you know, some of the really bad ones. Yeah, you're not assuming you're, you retire one year. You're taking 30 years and looking at each of those. Just saying, look, there's a wide distribution of outcomes. Let's make sure our plan covers us under the vast majority of them that we're still happy. Uh, just being agnostic about there are no facts about the future and there are no, we're not trying to predict anything. It's just trying to come up with a reasonable estimate of a, of a, get a wide range of distributions of what return experience we might have and that seems to work quite well. It served, it served my clients very well. It served us very well at Rudy Wealth. Not a commercial. I hope that's not a shameless commercial. Probably sound like it. Anyway, well, I guess we're going to be back in two weeks. Right. That I know. I'll be back going up to Minnesota. And, uh, Ryan, do you have anything else to say? You got you know, 10 seconds to tell everybody what a great father-in-law you have. Yeah, I'll say that for next week. But we got the spring game for the line night coming up on Monday. So for anybody who's excited about yeah, football, I think it's exciting just to be thinking about it. I'm happy about the new coach. I think you have to get tickets ahead of time too. I do. Yep. I think, and I think many of them are spoken for. Anyway, this is Paul Rudy for Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio. Thanks. We'll be back in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.